Good morning, E3 family. You guys are pumped up. It's that opener song. That was fun and awesome. Thanks, uh, Papa John, Papa Stott, and for our worship team uh, for all their work. This is a great worship set this morning. Amen. We're going to jump right into Mark this morning. Before we do that, just two really quick kind of before the sermon starts uh, details. When I'm looking at this logo behind me, it is amazing. And I should have said that the very first week. Uh, thanks so much to Katie Grab for her work on this logo. It's fantastic. So I know if she's here or working online, this is fantastic. So I wanted to say that. And then secondly, this is kind of how I preach when we go into the Bible, into books like Mark or Matthew, Luke, John, Acts, Letters to the Romans. We can keep going through all of them, but we don't, we're not going to. You observe 70% of the time. You don't take your preconceived notions and put them in Scripture we have Christians who do that, and eventually they look kind of foolish. You, you let Scripture speak to you, and then the rest, rest of the time we're going to spend a little time interpreting what does that mean as we observe it, and then applying that into our lives. Now, the application I put in there is, is 1,000%, right? It's 100% of your life. You apply what you read from Scripture. But in all honesty, we're, this is how I structure my sermons many times. Thanks to Pastor Mike for doing such a good job last week preaching this an amazing sermon and let's jump in to Mark chapter 3. If you have your Bible, your Bible apps, grab those, get them ready. A question as we, as we get those ready and put it on the screen here. And in the online chat, were you picked first in games? Thinking about those times where you're at the, the playground and you're, you're going to play a pickup game of basketball or dodgeball or soccer or whatever. Were you picked last for games or somewhere in between? Okay, so in-house, how many of your first pickers? We have one person. Two, three, Okay. I'm, I'm not even looking at you, Pastor Mike, okay? Good. Now, how many of your last for games? Oh, you are my people. I'll get there in a moment. How many are somewhere in between? There we go. Yeah, there, and that should make sense statistically, right? Now, if for some reason when I said how many were picked first for games and all y'all raised your hands, we would start a game, right? And we, we'd do inter-church league volleyball or something, right? We, we'd go dominate the, the church landscape here in Tallahassee. Here's my confession. I'm a band geek, there's my people over here. I love it. You got to say it. Okay, okay. Trumpets, anyone? Yep. <clears throat> and that's our, that's our sermon this morning. Thank you all. Good night. I'm a, I was in a marching band for most of my life. And for those who are in marching band, and if you're not in marching band, you won't understand this at all. 90% of my dreams are about marching band. I don't have my music. I don't have where I'm supposed to go. I don't know where I am or where my uniform is. There are whole dreams where I'm, I'm marching in my shorts and no shirt. It's the weirdest thing, okay? And, and it, is, it is a phenomenon that happens with extremely stressful moments. Now, in marching band, we had, I had the opportunity my junior and senior year at the University of Nebraska, go Huskers, to pick the trumpets who made it into the marching band. That is a horrible place to put anybody in, in, in a situation, where you don't have to worry if you're first, last, or in the middle, but you're the one picking the teams. You notice I leave that group out because there's always a kid in elementary school, and if you didn't raise your hand, you were that kid, where you had the gall to say, I'm picking the teams. And I remember my senior year, I picked this kid, and he was, first of all, we say, how many of you are, can play? And you, you do the whole audition process. And what's fascinating is I was so nervous about picking him because I'm like, there's this something isn't quite right about him. And he was behind me as we came out of the tunnel to go into the Memorial Stadium, 90,000 people screaming. And I looked behind me 
and there is a very large wet spot where a wet spot should not be. I don't know how much dry cleaning is to get urine out of wool, but he paid the full amount to do that. And unfortunately, that's that Saturday afternoon, the, the word Huskers on the field, this was missing one little dot. I picked him thinking, hey, I'm going to take a leap on him. I'm going to take a little bit of faith because he wasn't quite all there as a person yet. And it showed pretty evidently and pretty abundantly during that Saturday afternoon. Now, contrary to Pastor Mike's sermon last week, I was not that person, okay? I did not actually pee myself. This isn't one of those sermons where at the end I say, hey, surprise, I peed myself in, in, a, in a little uniform. I promise, guys, I promise. But I, what I want to do is, is talk this morning, it's all serious, it's about who Jesus picked. Because Jesus had to pick people in his crowd, in his group. And so a little bit of context before we jump into chapter 3, starting at verse 13, Jesus has gone through the rulers of the day, the established rulers, and basically told them what's what. He, he did not back up what they were preaching, what they were saying, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. And he blatantly goes in contrast to them in chapters 2, and as we get into 13 here this morning, if you want more information about what Jesus does, come to the Tuesday Night Mark Bible Study. Uh, Pastor Michael will be leading this week, and it's a phenomenal group of people who are going really in-depth, really verse by verse, what we don't preach on here on Sunday mornings. But we see that this group of people are following Jesus, become more and more numerous because they're wanting healing, they want to hear from a person who teaches unlike the teachers of the law in Jesus' day. So that's what we're going to pick up, starting at verse 13. It's on the screens if you want to follow along with me. Jesus went up to the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He pointed 12 that they might be with him and they might send up to preach, to have authority to drive out demons. Remember that right there. They have to preach and drive out demons. And here are the people he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, verse 17. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to him he gave the son name Boandreas, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Here's the interesting point of this. It's outside the context. But if we go backwards in Scripture in chapter 3, just a few verses, he picks from a group of people who would not be the cream of the crop, who would not be the best of the best. He's picking from people who are just kind of following him in this mob, it appears, at least in Mark's gospel. Go back to chapter 3, starting at verse 6 and 7. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, excuse me, how they might kill Jesus. Jesus, what word? Withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd of Galilee followed. Jesus leaves the synagogue, he leaves what should be the place where he would take the future leaders of the kingdom of God. Isn't that fascinating? It'd be like today, if you know, Jesus was around today, which sounds very cliche, but in all seriousness, if Jesus was worshiping here at element three, he'd look around and say, yeah, this isn't what I'm here to rescue. And he'd go over to Tom Brown Park and just hang out there for a few days and pick people who are just kind of randomly walking around. They may, may not know anything about the Bible or about God. He withdraws and finds this group of crowd following him, wanting, but from here is who he selects the 12 who we just mentioned. Why 12? Well, in the Old Testament, if you remember the character who is Jacob, he's Israel. He wrestles with God. He breaks his hip somehow. This, this, this character has 12 sons. Now, he, 
these 12 sons come over through numerous chapters in Genesis, starting at chapter 29 all the way through 35. And we see Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, who has a very beautiful coat of many, or in the Hebrew, it might just be he had really long sleeves. Either way, it was new, and you never get a hand-me-down if you're, if you're the 11th child out of 12. I mean, and he got a new one, and so the brothers get jealous. But Benjamin is the last one, and these 12 are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus, very symbolically and very importantly, chooses 12 new leaders of the tribes of the kingdom of God, of Jesus' new Israel. As I said earlier, their jobs were to preach the good news and to drive out demons. So, out of this crowd, you would think that, hey, I need somebody who can, can preach and drive out demons. I'm going to find people who maybe have some experience with that. It'd be like me, sitting there saying, okay, how many of you can play trumpet? And everybody picks up, you know, woodwinds that are worthless, basically, in the band. Oh, oh, did I, did I, did I? Who's, I, let's just keep running, let's keep running, let's keep going. I love woodwinds, by the way. They're, they're great. Okay, they're great. I just have to make sure you're awake. What's interesting is I want to do an in-depth dive of the people who Jesus picked to understand, can they drive out demons and can they speak? Let's start with Simon. We all know Simon later has his name changed to Peter by Jesus himself, which is very symbolic and is a whole other sermon in itself. Simon was a fisherman. He was, from Gal- he was a Galilean fisherman, and he was the most outspoken and leader of the 12. In fact, he is the one, when Jesus is arrested, who takes a sword and fights back against the Romans physically. He's also married. Just consider that for a moment. His name in every single list of disciples, he's always number one, which shows that the writers of all of the New Testament see him as the primary leader. He never is number two or 11 or any other number. And we see that he is likely the source of the book we're actually doing, talking to John Mark. And he's also the author of First and Second Peter, the letters that come later in the Bible. Now, in my opinion, I don't know this. This is what I see from doing research. I believe that Peter is likely unable to read and write. And he just tells everything to authors who then write it down for him. Again, this is best guess. So you would think if he's unable to read and write, he might not be able to do much of public speaking. We'll see about that in a moment. James, this is the next one. James the Greater is what we call him. It doesn't mean he's better. It just means he's a little bit bigger. And you'll see in a moment we have James the Lesser, who means he's just a little bit shorter or smaller. Now, James the Greater was another fisherman. He was a temple Jew, so he worshiped at the temple. And he has the nickname, along with his brother John, Sons of Thunder, which sounds like an awesome 80s rock band name, right? He was also a leader in the early church. He was a profound leader in the book of Acts and into the infancy of the church. But likely, based again on context, we don't know this for sure, he's actually not the author of the book of James. It could have been a different James at that time. Next one is John. John was a fisherman. He is another one of those sons of thunder, so brother of James. He was a temple Jew as well, and he knew the high priest, which is important in the gospel of John. John has access to places that the normal 12 didn't have. We don't exactly know why or how, but he does know the high priest. And he's what Jesus calls the beloved disciple. Jesus seemed to have a connection with John so much so that when Jesus is on the cross, he tells John to take care of his mother as he was about to die. John writes the letter of John, and we find in the fourth gospel, all the letters of John and the the, the account of Revelation, the gospel of Revelation, excuse me, the account of Revelation. 
John is a tremendous author in the New Testament library. The next disciple we're going to focus on is Andrew. Andrew was a fisherman. He's Galilean, and he's brother to Simon Peter. So right now you're doing the equation. You say, okay, I have two sets of brothers. You got to pray for Jesus on that point alone. But we see that it is Andrew who brings Peter to Jesus in the book of John. Not on a mountainside where Jesus is picking them from a group. Andrew brings Peter to Jesus earlier on. We don't know much more about Andrew except those facts. Philip was a Galilean. He is in Acts, the book of Acts, in a very profound way, unless the author of the book of Acts writes about a different Philip that we don't know today. And so our best guess is it is the apostle Philip, but we're not 100% sure. So I just want to give you that little bit of detail there. Philip brings Bartholomew and Nathaniel, who also the same name, to Jesus. And he's also one who says, I can't believe we could ever find enough money to buy bread for 5,000 people. So we see that in the book of John, Philip has some things about him that, that we don't normally get in the book of Mark. The next apostle is Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew. He has two really long names. And what's interesting, he's one of the few people in Jesus's time who would have two names. We all have last names, correct? And it's because there's so many people in this day and age, we need two names to understand who we're talking about. There's another Scott who works here at E3 Church, and he works on the tech team. And when he's here, somebody says, Scott, both of us look at the same time. We all have that problem, unless you have a really cool name. If you have a really cool name, you don't have that problem. Your name is unique among a group of people. But I can't tell you how many times I'll turn around crowd, somebody's yelling Scott for some reason, and I don't know who they are or why they're calling my name. We see that he has two names because he is from a noble line. Jesus calls him a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And it's a sign of royal lineage. He himself is not royal because he's hanging around with an itinerant preacher. He is probably a descendant of a royal person. More on that in a moment. Bartholomew means son of Talmai. And so Talmai likely was that celebrity in Jesus' day. The next person we'll focus on is Matthew, Levi. He has two different names. And we're not entirely sure why he has these two different names, but the Gospel of Matthew shows that he writes that, and so he uses that as his primary name. But in, in other books, he's called Levi. He was a tax collector, and there's for supported Rome. And he calls out the hated life of sin compared to Israelite thinking. He spends time in Antioch and writes his account, I believe, there of the Gospel of Matthew. And so he is likely either the writer or a source who worked with other disciples of his own to write the book of Matthew. Next, we're almost there, friends. Thomas, Judas, he's famous for doubting that Jesus was resurrected. He says, until I go like this, until I go like this, no way that happened. And he had a twin brother who wasn't a disciple. It's really all the facts I have about Thomas and Judas. James the Lesser, who we talked about earlier in comparison to James the Greater, was likely a Sadducee. He was maybe a half-brother or some relation to Matthew, so keep that in mind. And definitely he's a brother of Jude. That's all we know about James Lesser. So let's go next to Jude, or he had a nickname Thaddeus, or he had a nickname Judas, son of James. So again, the guy has too many names. He's likely a Sadducee. We're not entirely sure. And it's possibly because, again, if you're following the family tree here, he is for sure the, the brother of James Lesser, but then he may then be the half-brother of who? Matthew, thank you for paying attention. One person. Good, 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 good. Thank you, thank you. Got to be paying attention to this. Two more. Simon the Zealot, who all of us should love that Jesus picks him out of anybody else in that group. 
He was a member of this political group called the Zealots, and their job was to attack Rome. And so they would plan elaborate assassination attempts. Friends, Simon the Zealot is an ancient terrorist who's hanging around with a bunch of brothers who are all fishermen or something of that effect. Lastly, we have maybe the most famous disciple, Judas Iscariot. We all know who Judas is because of the role he plays in the story of Jesus Christ. What's interesting is that he's a Jewish nationalist. He wants Judea and all of Jerusalem to come back into power. And he's possibly the only one from Judea. He's a treasurer of the disciples, and he's very outspoken through the entirety of all four Gospels. And is always painted in a slightly bad light, likely because of his experiences later on in the story. The point of this is this. Jesus calls 12 stooges of ministry. He does not call, you all like that, okay. He did not call, he did not call the elites, the greatest speakers, the ones who can do healings. He calls 12 nobodies, 12 woebegones, out of a group of the entirety of the human race he could have called. He even, later on in the verses that follow, turns us on his mother and his brothers And it says that he who does the will of God is my mother and brother. And this shocking twist that points Mary, the mother of Jesus, in such a bad light shows that Mark's information is not manufactured. To recap, we have four fishermen, one tax collector, one noble, two Sadducees, a zealot, a Jewish nationalist, two unknowns. We don't know anything about them. These aren't the people that lead a new faith, let alone get along together. Yet Jesus' power and leadership as a 35-year-old ex-carpenter unites these supposed enemies. Can you imagine how an argument would go among this group of people? Who's the greatest? What to do? Where do we go? Jesus' disciples fight a lot. What if we could get a parallel from day? If fishermen were so common in Jesus' day, I'm being creative here, so read nothing into this, but this is how I believe it could look. Four retail salesmen, an embezzler, One grandson of a celebrity, two left Democrats, two right Republicans. What if you gave them a divisive issue in this day and age? Hey, friends, how should we deal with masks in school? Go. How about immigration? How about racism? Yes, I acknowledge the uncomfortableness in the room right now as well. Jesus unites the divided. The modern day church is in a bind. Most people are only coming to be affirmed and not challenged with what they actually believe. It is my belief that as churches go on into next seasons of existence, those that only preach what people want to hear will undoubtedly fail in doing the work of Jesus Christ. I love this church and the diversity of opinions and ideas, the diversity of opinions that we can find common ground in the work and name of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus' group was so divided, this is how our culture is currently functioning. More and more a divisive issue, whether it be homosexuality, abortion, poverty, taxes, foreign diplomacy, everything seems to divide us. There's not been a leader who can unite these varied beliefs over many generations. I'm not just talking Democrats or Republicans. I'm talking back in the 1960s, 50s, 40s, 30s. The roots of today's division can be traced back to certain events for sure. But the real roots started at the beginning of our country. Jesus had to feel so alone in his contemporary nonsense. And I believe many of us do today. What is interesting is that each one of these disciples, when they see the true cause for Jesus' life and death, when they see what it means to follow him, they're willing to sacrifice all of themselves 
besides, of course, Judas Iscariot. Now, I want to give a quick rundown, and I'm going to keep it PG-rated because it could go very much PG-13, and I just don't know the voice or the ears in the room. You see that from each one of these 12 who just outlined, they're willing to be crucified upside down, beheaded by Herod, sent off to an island with nothing in exile for the rest of his life, crucified on an X-shaped cross because they didn't want to be crucified as their Savior was, hung, speared, and shot with arrows. I'm leaving three off that if you want to do some gross research on Google, there are things that we would never even fathom that a human could do to another human to cause them to give up the faith they have in Jesus Christ. These same disciples showed the extreme unification as they did extreme infighting during Jesus' life. What changed? It was a realization that Jesus picked them. That Jesus assured them because of their faith in him that all would one day worship the true God as king. This interpretive statement is what we're going to use from this chapter, that Jesus chooses them and Jesus chooses us in this room. It relates to what Jesus states in verses later, who is my brother, sister, and mother? It is the one who does the will of God. Can you imagine that the orphan living in Haiti, the blind beggar in India, the prostitute in LA, and you may be spending eternity together? Because Jesus chooses you, and if you're listening, he does choose you to be a disciple and to be a part and a member of his dinner party, you have to understand, not based on merit, but because he has the right to choose you. Just as I chose my urine-soaked friend so many years ago, Jesus chooses you, not based on how you'll perform leaving this sermon, not based on how you're going to live your life or the successes you'll have, but because he loves you. Theologically, there are many who would say you're chosen before, a thing called predestination. And let me say, that's just a very dangerous theological way of walking. In fact, I have very strong thoughts that it's not the way we need to think as a people. They were not picked before the creation of time. Friends, we are picked because Jesus loves us. That's it. The fact of the matter is, is that these disciples we see in all four gospels don't have this one moment and then they're disciples. Jesus comes to them over and over and over in very different contexts and calls them into ministry, which means he had to call them back to ministry. As an itinerant preacher who did not collect a salary of any point, we see that they probably have to go back to their jobs, to their wives, to their families several times and take care of their own personal lives. This requires the greatest amount of faith to shatter through our preconceived notions of Jesus, that the man who revealed himself to the tax collector, many sinners, a lame man, demon-possessed, man with leprosy, man with a shriveled hand, and crowds and crowds and crowds of sick, will likely be more inclusive than exclusive, which gets us back to our original image. You have a responsibility not just for yourself to move closer to Jesus, but to help others do exactly the same. It's not enough just to say, oh, I I said a prayer or I did an act or I believe that I was picked before the creation of the world. And those may be fine and good and dandy, It is the fact that moment by moment, you either are going closer to him or further away, and it's Jesus at the center who picks you and shows you where you are. It's not a self-evaluation test. It's one that you have to continually mark yourself and grade yourself and, friends, bring others. 
If you have a desire to see this church grow, bring others into a relationship with Jesus. Bring others to the table. The worship, the preaching, the coffee, everything will get better when we invite others into our story. That's what I do with this last story real quick. I used to do youth group a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And as youth leader, I had a quick trick. We would do fun events or lock-ins. I'd say, hey, there's a $10 fee to make this event happen. Or if you bring a friend, you can get in for free. Youth, who are super smart, by the way, they understood that economy. And they said, yeah, I'm going to bring a friend. And friends, we went from a youth group of six kids who came on a Wednesday night to 85 in two years. And not just 85 who were like, just number went from the numbers. We had, I knew every one of those kids and I in, interact with them week in, week out, week in, week out. Love them all. And if they're watching from Lincoln, Nebraska or around this world, love you. Here's the point. It just takes an invitation. It doesn't take a financial con, bait and switch. It means that you go out and find a person who God has placed in your life to be a part of his story. As the worship team comes up with a closer song, I want to just really emphasize this point and have it hit home that because Jesus picks you, Jesus has picked every single one of us, we have the freedom now to share that awesome news with our friends, with our neighbors. As Pastor Mike spoke out last week, even sometimes our enemies, if we're called to do that, With that great news, let's stand and sing to our great God as a response.